Good morning, everybody. Great to be with you guys here in the room and those online. Good to be with you. Uh, as, as Doug mentioned, uh, so we just started a new series last week. I'm excited for it. Uh, learning to pray like Jesus. And if, if you are a person who prays, whether you have been a Christian for a long time or you're not a Christian or you're, you know, you're figuring that out, uh, if you are a person who prays, it's probably true that you experience some difficulty in prayer. Uh, whether that's being distracted when you pray or feeling like you show up to pray and it's kind of repetitive, kind of the same thing you showed up with yesterday. And, uh, or, you know, perhaps prayer feels more like duty than joy to you or whatever the case might be. Uh, I, I was thinking about this week, kind of how we're framing this series. And if, if, Jesus, if Jesus had written a book entitled How to Pray, I would imagine probably everybody in here would read that. That is something that we would pick up and we would say, okay, I want to know what he has to say about this. Uh, but if, if you really think about it, this, this series, as we're going through the Lord's Prayer, this was Jesus' response to his disciples asking that question. His disciples seeing them pray and saying, something is different in the way that Jesus prays than, than when I pray. And asking them, Lord, can you teach us how to do this? Can you teach us how to pray? And he answered. Uh, the book, if you will, is less than 100 words long. It's something that you and I can memorize inside of an hour. And this is Jesus' instructions on how to pray. And note, he didn't just say, this is what you're supposed to pray. He said, this is how you pray. This is instructions on how we are to approach God in prayer. And uh, in this series, we are, we're going through seven words that kind of sum up this prayer and, and sum up for us what are the actions that we are taking in prayer if we are praying in the way that Jesus teaches. And the first one we're doing today, and that first word is reflect. Reflect. Jesus tells us that when we pray, we begin by reflecting on who it is that we are praying to. The first thing that we do when we pray is we focus in on who is God? What is this God like? Who is this God that we are praying to? That's, that's where it all begins. Uh, we're going to be reading this morning from Matthew chapter 6, if you want to join me there. And, uh, and as... As we pray and come to the scriptures, let me invite you to join me in uh, in praying this prayer. It'll be on the screen behind me. But let's make this our prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And Father, as we come to this text today, we pray that you would be stirring in our hearts. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would fill us, that you would would open our eyes, open our ears to see what it is that you are teaching us. Uh, God, would you use this in our lives to make us not just people who pray better, but through that become more like Christ. We thank you. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So, Jesus tells us the first thing that we do when we come to God in prayer is that we reflect 
on who God is. The prayer opens with this line, our Father in heaven. And, and really pause there and think about the significance that this prayer starts in this way. Because I, I would suggest to you that this is huge. It, it's probably too much to say this is everything because there's a lot more that comes after it. But in some ways, it kind of is. It determines everything that comes next. Friends, what you believe about God, what you believe God is like, determines everything else, not just about how you pray, but how you relate to God in general. Uh, The 20th century theologian A.W. Tozer said this. I don't think it's an exaggeration. He says, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. The most important thing. Because everything else of how you walk through life is going to be dependent on that. Now think about this in light of what Jesus is saying here. Knowing that, consider of all of the aspects of God's character that Jesus could have put out there for us to reflect on. He chooses this, this image of the Father. Of all the character traits of God that the scripture talks about, and there are so many, Jesus could have chosen from any of those. But he chooses to sum up for us in a word who God is by referring to him as Abba, the the Aramaic word that a little child would use for their father, this affectionate term for one's dad, our father. Now, it, it doesn't make any of the other things that scripture says about God less true, but it's very instructive that Jesus would say, this is the one thing that I want you to really hold on to. When you go to pray, reflect on the fact that God is your Father. Uh, The late pastor Eugene Peterson, he he said this whole concept came clear for him once when he was in Israel and he was in the airport and he's walking through and he hears a little child running across the, the tiles to meet their parents and he's crying out, Abba, 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 in this little kid's voice. And he said, that's the first time I'd ever heard the word spoken outside of a church. And he said, it changed everything for me. I realized in that moment, this is not a theological term. This is a relational term. And then what Jesus wants for me as I come to God is to experience God the way that Jesus experiences God. As a loving father. Uh, It's important to note here that that what Jesus is saying here is very unique. In the Old Testament, do you know how many times God is referred to as Father? Zero. Not once. But in the Gospels, Jesus refers to God as Father 170 times. And the rest of the New Testament goes on to reinforce this more and more. Jesus wants us, when we pray, to reflect on the fact that we can come to God as our Father. So, with me so far? Now, we need to say at the outset here that for some, I dare say for a lot of people, hearing that God is our Father is not good news. We hear that and there's a part of us that maybe shrinks back a little or a part of us that maybe recoils a bit. There's a lot of father wounds that... uh, many of us will carry. And the thought that God could be like our Father for some is their worst fear. 
this was equally true, by the way, in Jesus' time as it is in ours. If anything, in that time, it was much more acceptable for a father to be a very harsh figure in somebody's life. And even for those here who had really good fathers, that image is still going to fall short of what our Heavenly Father is like. So for all of us, I, I would suggest this. If, um, uh, let, me, let me say this. The, the other side of the coin is true as well. That in learning to see God as our Father and see him as the Father that we actually need, there is a tremendous opportunity for healing there. For God, in a very real sense, to reparent us and redefine and even heal some of those wounds that maybe you've experienced from your father. So uh, rather than, than discarding this or trying to downplay it, embrace what Jesus is saying and let him redefine what the father is like. Uh, and to that end, how does Jesus describe what our heavenly father is like? He says a lot about this in the Gospels, but I, I want us to read this morning uh, this one particular story that I think encapsulates more than anywhere else in the Gospels what Jesus said our father is like. It's a story about a father and two sons. And uh, we'll read it together, and I want to highlight a few aspects of what Jesus is saying the father is like. This is Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. It says, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, pause there, uh, because if, if we were reading this, not here today, but if we were reading this in the first century, anywhere in the Middle East, there would be a gasp at this point. Uh, absolute shock. It, it wasn't bad for this younger son to expect that he would inherit his father's property, the norm was that if, if there were two sons, the older son would get two-thirds of the property, the younger son would get one-third. So that's not the problem. But for the younger son to want to inherit the property now, while his father is still alive, is just about the deepest insult in that culture that you could give towards your father. It's a shocking level of disrespect. It means, in essence, that the son is impatient for his father to die. Uh, the New Testament scholar Kenneth Bailey, who spent his entire life and career, uh, nearly 50 years in the Middle East, teaching the gospel, he said he would, would tell the story when he went to Bedouin villages, uh, very you know, remote places, and he would always ask, has anyone in your village ever asked for this, ever asked their father for their inheritance while the father is still alive? And they would respond in utter shock, you know, never, it's impossible, nobody would do that. And he said, well, well, if it did happen, what do you think would happen? You know, and they're beside themselves. They're saying, oh, the father would be angry. He would refuse. That son would be beaten. He'd probably be banished from the village forever. It means he wants his father to die. How could a son ask that of his father? And that's the picture that Jesus is painting. The son is basically saying, I wish you were dead because I want your things not you. I wonder if in times when we're able to be really honest with ourselves, if we would be able to say that there's times when we don't really want God. We just want what he can do for us. 
We don't really want the Father. We just want whatever blessings we think he might be able to give. If we're being maybe even more honest still, we might even say that it would be a lot easier if God wasn't in the picture. If he would just sort of give us what we want and then go away and not bother us with any of that other pesky stuff. We're like the younger son in a lot of ways, I think. And Jesus, Jesus is naming that in this way. And, and in that, uh, the only thing for the original hearers that would have been more startling uh, than the son's disrespect is the father's response. It says here that the father responded by giving the son the money. And this is the the first aspect of the father's character that Jesus is pointing out here, that the father is generous. The son says to the father, I could care less if you live or die. I just want your stuff. But still, the father gives it. He is incredibly generous. And for the first hearers, and, and maybe for you also, as you hear this, I mean, we read this, and we just go, that's insane. Who would do that? But that's exactly the point that Jesus is making about what God is like and what he wants us to reflect on. This is the God who loved the world so much that he gave his son to die for this world. This is a father who doesn't withhold from his children. He is over the top, generous, lavish, in his love, a generosity that defies understanding. And if you're really hearing this, according to Jesus, we don't understand what God is like until we realize this is the level of generosity at which God operates. In spite of that, how often for you and I do we come to prayer with this presupposition that God is actually kind of stingy? that he might be holding out on me, that I'm probably not going to get what I want, and in fact, he may go on to block some of my most desired goals. And so we're guarded because we don't understand the heart of the Father. Jesus says, start here when you come into prayer. Start by stopping and reflecting on who it is that you are praying to. He is a God who is lavishly generous. Now, let's keep reading. Verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. 
Now, it's bad enough that the son took the father's money, right? Asked for it while the father's still alive. The father does it. He takes it, and he goes, and he squanders it. And significantly here in, in the text, it says that he squandered it in a distant country, which is worse. So it means he took the father's hard-earned money, his estate, he's been working towards his whole life, and he, he not only wastes it all, but he wastes it with Gentiles, which would have been terrible in their eyes. And this is just one of the aspects of racism in that culture of this Jew-Gentile divide. So uh, the, the son is already shamed himself and the entire family in asking for the inheritance, but now he compounds his shame by losing it to the Gentiles. And there was actually a custom that went along with this. If, if you lost the family money among Gentiles uh, and somehow you had the, the chutzpah to decide you're going to come home in spite of this and show your face again in your hometown, uh, then they had the ceremony called the kazaza. And literally, it means the cutting off. And what would happen is when, when they saw the person who lost the money, when they saw them coming to the village, they would meet him at the edge. They didn't even want him setting foot into the village itself. They would meet him at the edge of town, stop him there, and take a great big clay pot and smash it at his feet. And they would cry out, so-and-so is cut off from his people. And he would not be allowed to return into the village or see his family or come home in any sense ever again. They would have nothing to do with him from that point on. And so the son would have known this. That for him to, to do what he did, shame the family, lose the money, shame the family more, to come home or even attempt to come home, he's going to have to endure the kazaza, this cutting off. He's going to have to endure the probable rejection of his family. He's going to have to endure the scorn of the older brother who's not going to be happy about how he shamed the family, all of this. But he is so desperate that he wants to give it a shot. He's so desperate. And I'm sure you caught it, but you've got to love the irony here, right? This is a good Jewish boy, and to, to try to make money, he's feeding pigs, right? This is a big no-no, very shameful too. And in fact, he wishes he could eat what the pigs were eating. He's been reduced so low that, that not only is, is he spending his time with pigs, which he's not supposed to touch, he wishes he could eat what they were eating. So, you know, he, he concocts this plan, plans this speech, Right? Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Right? Makes this plan to come back, not as a son, but to come back as a worker, to come back as a servant on his father's estate and begin to maybe pay things back and work his way back into his father's good graces. Right? And have you ever done that, by the way? Have you ever, after a particularly big screw-up, Come to God asking, is there some way you can take me back, even just as, you know, scrub? I remember uh, one fellow I was pastor of for a number of years. Remember, he, he used to love saying, you know, as, as long as I get like a curb in heaven, that's all. I, I don't need a mansion in heaven, just a curb to sit on. That's all I want. And I feel like, I, the Father might have more for you than that, brother. And anyway, it's a thing. But um, you, maybe you relate to that. But, but here's the thing. Here we get a window into the Father's soul. And hear this. This is... This is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. This is verse 20. It says, But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him 
and was filled with compassion for him and ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Here we find that the father is not only generous, but he is compassionate. The father is compassionate. This is a window into his heart. What was the father doing? What was the father doing while the son was off disgracing the family and squandering the family estate? He was watching. The father was watching. His eyes were on the road. His eyes were on the horizon, hoping for the day when his son might, in fact, come home. And when the father saw him, he was filled with compassion. All right, this is so nerdy, but I, I love it. So the, the Greek word here behind compassionate is this word splangnizomai. It's fun to say. Say it with me. Splangnizomai. So good. Yes, thank you so much. So splangnizomai. And, and in the Hebrew understanding of, of the person, uh, your heart wasn't the seat of emotions. Your guts were, right? And the, the root word of the splagna means guts, right? It means the father felt this in the guts. He saw his son and his insides were moved. His gut shook with compassion for his son. Friends, even while the son was running, even while the son was moving away from the father as fast as he could, the father, in a sense, was still right there with him. He's watching the road. He's waiting for the son to come home. In Jesus' prayer, it says, Our Father in heaven... And sometimes we, we hear that phrase in heaven and, and we might think that means, okay, well, the father, the father's there, but the father is way out there. He's, he's far away from me. He's distant. But again, in Hebrew understanding, heaven, uh, heaven is the place where God dwells, but it doesn't start far off. It starts right here. In Hebrew and Greek, both the, the word for heaven is the same word that we use for air. The father is not just distant. The Father is always right there, as close as the breath that you are breathing. The Father, he's watching the road for you, friends, always. He always wants you home. He is a God that is compassionate. But beyond this, the, the Father is generous, is compassionate. Also, the Father is sacrificial. Verse 20 again. It says, when he saw his son, he was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son. So a small detail, but this is really significant too. Points to the father being sacrificial. He runs to meet him. And again, it's a cultural thing, but in that culture, as, as an elder male, you never ran. That's what, that's what boys do and young men do. But as an elder man, you always walk slow in a dignified way, and you want the robes covering your legs entirely. If you start running and you show a little leg, that's considered quite disgraceful. That's not what a dignified older gentleman does. You always walk, no matter what. But the father runs. And why? Well, clearly this compassion, right? I mean, he runs to his son. He throws his arms around his neck. He kisses him. His love for the son is overwhelming. But there, there's another piece here, too. And I, I think it's, it's the kazaza, right? The father 
needs to get to the sun first. Because if the village sees him coming, the village is going to try to protect the father's honor and not let him set foot inside the village. And the son is going to be subject to the disgrace of the pot being broken at his feet and him being sent away in shame. And so the father runs to meet him. And think about this. To do that, he has to shame himself. The father shames himself in running. He endures the disgrace that the son should have endured to keep the son from having to experience that. And it comes with a cost. The price is his own shame. And that's the gospel, isn't it? That's the cross. That our God endures what we should have to endure so that we won't have to endure it. That our God has taken on himself our sins and the penalty that those sins deserve. That our God has taken on himself our shame. And he bore that in hanging naked on a cross. The Father is compassionate. The Father is generous. The Father is sacrificial. When we pray in the way that Jesus tells us to pray, we stop and we reflect, who is this God that we are praying to? Are you starting to see the difference it can make? If we're just lobbing prayers towards heaven and a God we're not thinking about, the difference between that and reflecting on who this God is that we would come to in prayer. Our Father that is generous and compassionate and sacrificial. And also this, finally. It's our God who is gracious. And check out the Father's response. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now, did you notice here? The son doesn't even get to finish his speech. <laughs> right? He gets through part one of it. But the whole part about, you know, let me just crawl back and be a servant on your estate. He doesn't even get to that. The father cuts him off before he gets there. He says, bring the best robe. That, incidentally, would be the father's own robe. Bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring and put it on his finger. This would be the the signet ring. Uh, Except for the father, only sons would wear the ring. This is what you would use to to stamp the wax on a document, uh, to make decisions of a business nature for the estate, that sort of a thing. He says, put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Servants could go barefoot. That was fine. But not sons. Sons always wore something on their feet. And then, you know, the party. It says, let's serve some prime rib. Let's celebrate. The son is home. In other words, the prodigal is not being received back as a servant. He is being received back as a son and received back with joy. 
Let me ask you this. Have you ever done the thing where you kind of pre-disqualify yourself with God? Right? Feeling that rejection is imminent. This time I have gone too far. Again, it's too much. You sort of preemptively reject yourself. I know God wouldn't take me back after this. Sometimes we, we, we maybe don't use the words that the son uses here, but sometimes we kind of downgrade our status. and Say, okay, I'm, I'm not going to bail altogether, but I'm just kind of going to grovel back as a servant. And maybe that'll be enough. Maybe God will take me then. But friends, hear what Jesus is saying here. Our Father is gracious beyond what you and I could hope. He is always, always, always ready to receive his children back. He will not reject a son or daughter who chooses to walk down that road towards him. Man, this pales, but... um, when I was 16, I was a brand new driver, very excited about the freedom of the open road, my, uh, my U2 Joshua Tree tape in the cassette deck, racing about wherever, and uh, one night, had some friends in the car, and I was being an idiot and driving a reckless way, and just crashed the car bad. My folks' brand new Ford Taurus. Crashed it hard, totaled that thing. Thank God nobody was hurt in the accident, but, uh, but the car was toast. And, uh, and oh man, <laughs> that phone call home. And uh, my dad having to come and pick us up. And going home and... Um, you know, the scare that I'd given my mom. You know, all of it. It was just, at that point in my life, that, that was, I think, my deepest moment of shame. I, I didn't like to look at myself in the mirror. I was just, ugh. It was a terrible, terrible feeling. That weekend, uh, my grandpa came to visit. And um, uh, we, were, we were sitting around the house doing something. He he makes up some excuse and says, I need to go to the store. Can you come with me to the store? And I was like, no, I don't want to go to the store. I was afraid I was going to see somebody I knew. Everyone in town knows by now I've wrecked my parents' car. And, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm just going to stay in my room forever. You know, I'm... And my grandpa's like, no, 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 come on. I, I need your help. There's something... I need you to help me at the store. Get in the car. We're going to the store. And so I reluctantly drag myself out of my room and, you know, hang my teenage head as we walk to the car knowing, okay, I'm going to have to see other humans and this is going to be hugely embarrassing. And we get to the car and uh, my grandpa, standing there in front of his brand new Ford Taurus, (laughs) hands me the keys and says, why don't you drive me? And I, I couldn't even respond. I mean, my jaw was open, and I, I don't know if I tried to speak and couldn't, or I just had no words, but I just stood there dumbfounded in front of my grandpa. And he said to me, 
I know you know you made a mistake. I don't expect it's going to happen again. Drive me to the store. Friends, can you believe that the God of Jesus Christ, that our Father in heaven, is good enough and gracious enough and generous enough and loves you enough that on your worst day, your worst mistake, he can still look at you and say, I still love you. I still trust you. I'm not done with you. You haven't flunked grace. Listen, Jesus is telling us this is what God is like. And we don't don't understand. We don't understand God until we're able to see the Father the way Jesus sees the Father. And when we pray, when we pray, Jesus wants us to see the Father. Uh, one more piece to the story. This is, maybe it's gracious part two, but remember here there's a second son in the story as well. Verse 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, it's easy for us, I think, to miss that the older son shames his father too. The father has one response to the son coming home, right? He makes him a son again. He throws this party. They're celebrating. But the older son pouts. He refuses to go in. And in so doing, dishonors his father in front of all the guests, showing everybody that his heart and his actions are contrary to his father's will. And what does the father do with this son? Well, he extends grace to him too. He goes to him, just like he did the younger son. And he invites him, actually pleads with him, to come back in the house, to be part of the party. And friends, these two sons, they represent two different ways to be lost, two different ways to be distant from the father. We can be lost as a younger son, as a lawbreaker. We can also be lost as an older son, as a law keeper. Even though he was always with the father, all the father has is his. He can't see it. To him, obedience to his father is slavery. His commands are orders. Just like the younger son, he's more interested in what the father can do for him than in the father himself. And he can only manage to see what the father hasn't done for him, not what he has done. Uh, Don't miss this. Both sons are lost. Uh, The rebellious son and the religious son both have neither really found the father. 
And maybe you can relate to this some too. Right? Maybe in your heart of hearts you say, God, I really don't like the rules that you've made. I don't feel like they're the wisest way to live. They feel to me like slavery. Or maybe you get trapped in comparison. God, why would you do that for that person over there when I'm such a faithful servant compared to that loser? Or maybe if you've been a Christian for a while, maybe you've grown so over-familiar with God, just kind of gotten used to him being there, that you don't really show up with the Father. You sleep in instead of pray. You hit a Sunday if you've got nothing better going on. Serving, giving, sharing your faith, those things may be long gone. It's just another way to be lost, friends. We can be lost as a religious person as easily as we can as an irreligious person. But the truth is, and what Jesus is driving at here, there are so many ways for us to miss the gift that God is, and Jesus doesn't want that to happen. Friends, don't get sucked into the world's way of pleasure or religion's way of rule-keeping. Get to know God as Father, the Father of Jesus. And lesson one for us in Jesus' school of prayer is to reflect on who this Father is. When we come to pray, we reflect. There's different ways to do that, of course. Um, for me, when I'm, when I'm praying, I like to pray this first line of the prayer and then just to stop. And, and just to take some time. Right? It might be a minute or two. It might be longer. If, if, I'm, if I'm on a run and I'm praying, it could be a good long time. But just, just to thank God for who he is and for being my father. To think about what that means. To let faith in his goodness grow. Or you can, you can do this by, by stopping as you pray and just thinking about the things that God has done for you. This is one reason that I keep a prayer journal is so that that I, I don't lose those things as I go, you know? Um, but, but just reflect on what has God done in my life? It's such a reminder of his character and who he is, of ways that he's come through in the past and generosity and compassion and sacrifice and grace. Or, or sometimes I'll start my prayer by reading a psalm, reflecting on what that psalm teaches about who God is. Or I have a friend who likes to set a timer for two minutes when he sits down to pray. In the first two minutes of prayer, he just sits silently and reflects on who God is. There's, there's a lot of ways to do this. But Jesus says, this is where we start. And I want to, uh, I want to give you a challenge as we go into this series. So uh, we'll be in this series from now till the end of August. And during that time, I want to invite you, I want to challenge you to pray the Lord's Prayer every day at least one time, to pray the Lord's Prayer. You can, you can do this in about 30 seconds, or you could take an hour to pray the Lord's Prayer, depending on how deep you want to go into each piece, and we'll go into the various pieces in the weeks to come. But starting every day with this, this first piece, with Reflect. And there's, there's a second thing, too. I won't call this a, a challenge. It's more optional. I, I know it won't work for everybody, but... Um, so these, these beads, I've, uh, I've been carrying this one, or I've 
gone through a couple of them. This is a newer one, but I've been carrying these beads in my pocket for about 15 years, uh, since the time that I started really making the Lord's Prayer kind of the center of my prayer life. And um, there's seven beads on here, one for each of the seven words. And it's just kind of a simple, tactile way to help me stay present as I pray. A lot of Christians around the world pray with beads. It's kind of weird for those who, who uh, come from a Protestant tradition. It's not as normal for us, but it is kind of normal in the world scene in terms of Christians. But with, with each part of the prayer, you, I just kind of rub the bead as I pray that prayer, right? As I'm praying, reflect. That's bead number one. And it's just a reminder. And if my mind wanders and goes somewhere else, I'm like, oh, what bead am I on? It brings me right back to the place I'm at in the prayer. Uh, so um, we've got some of these for you in, in the back of the room. So on the table, the left and the back and the back corners, there's, there's prayer beads. And if you want to take these on as you're going through this series as well, see if it's a practice that's helpful for you also, I'd, uh, I'd invite you to do so. But for all of us, as we learn from Jesus how to pray, we want to do so by reflecting on who our Father is. Let's pray together as we respond in worship.